Well, good morning. Gathered together here with the saints, it is quite an honor and a privilege, of course, to open the Word of God with you. If you would, open your copy of the Scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 again. And let me open with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are feeble and frail, and we need your assistance even to proclaim your great name. Father, I pray that you would help me in that today, to honor you by rightly dividing your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me ask you a question. Do you feel, do you ever feel like a nobody? Insignificant, unimportant, replaceable. Ever feel that way? Um, could it be you're right? You ever thought that through? I mean, there's been a few trillion people to walk through this planet of the course of its existence, and we are probably some of the only generation of people to actually believe the goofy, narcissistic teachings of our culture that you are what matters, you are significant. Can you imagine telling that to a uh, Roman citizen who was one of 15 people living in a tiny little room in, a, in the city of Rome? You're just, like, you're just like cattle to the empire, and then you go and you tell one of these people that no one cares about, their family's dead, and they're like one of the only people left of their, the whole lineage, and you go to them and say, you know what really matters in this life? You. You're the significant one. It's amazing how often what we try to do when someone confesses to us that they feel like a nobody, we try to coddle them out of that like a mother to her child who's got a boo-boo. You know, it's like, oh, no, honey, you're awesome, and you're wonderful, and we start telling them all these things. We eulogize them while they're still alive. You know, it, how about trying this instead? The next time somebody were to say, you know, I feel like a nobody. I feel like I, I just don't matter. How about you lean in and just go, you know what, maybe you're onto something. <laughs> I mean, maybe you're thinking things through. Maybe you're being logical here. How about saying, you know, maybe you don't really matter all that much, but the message you contain does. You could tell somebody, look, I, I think you actually really are onto something. You really are insignificant. You really are replaceable. And this is one of these things that Priscilla and I have talked about in many conversations. I mean, I feel like that frequently. Like, you know, it's just, you can just be replaced so fast. It's amazing. You're just another wheel. You're just another wheel in the machine, man, if you're even a wheel. You might even just be on the gears of a clock, just one of those little notches, right? You really might be insignificant and replaceable, but this message that you have is priceless. How do you think that would go over if you told the average American that? That's ranting about their woes and their problems. How well do you think they would take that message if you actually embraced what they're saying and you said, you know what, maybe you really aren't that important, man. 
Maybe life really doesn't revolve around you. I kind of think some people would even lean into that. I kind of think a lot of people know all the goop they're being fed by culture. They know it's wrong. They know it's a lie. They know they're not that significant, even though we keep trying to tell them they are. They know that they can be replaced. And I remember that great theologian of old, Christopher Walken, you know, the actor, not a theologian, in case you didn't get my joke. Um, He said, you know, you stop caring so much about what people think when you realize how fast we forget the dead. You stop caring about what the living think. When you realize once somebody dies, we just, we just brush them off, man. Next. It's amazing to read the stories of some famous, incredibly famous actor from a former time and, and to read their story and watch how they just went off into obscurity and nobody cared. They, they died penniless, like Laurel and Hardy. I don't know if you've ever read, you, you, many of you probably know Laurel and Hardy, the comedians and all that stuff. They died penniless. Sad lives. Nobody cared. No one's looking out for them. You know, I, I don't know how exactly that message would go over, but I do know that in looking at the people that God uses throughout Scripture and in life in general, there aren't many high-born among us. Not many of the beautiful people of culture join the ranks of the beloved. I actually kind of think this is part of why we freak out so much when one of the beautiful people talks about conversion. I remember when I was a kid, Madonna... Yes, Madonna. She did a couple of songs that were vaguely reminiscent of Christian-ish themes, and people were seriously talking about, I think she's converted. Same thing happened with Kanye recently, right? And I remember some people being very excited about that. My response was, give it a beat. Let's give it a second. Let's see. Unfortunately, now he has gotten into some very upside-down teaching, preaching some ideas of being a little God himself and whatnot, moving completely away from the gospel of Jesus Christ that preaches self-denial. I remember Bob Dylan also had a flash in a pan on this as well. You know, but this isn't anything new. This isn't just American culture. This goes all the way back to Constantine or before. But Constantine, if you read the, the annuals of Eusebius, church historian, of that same time, when he talks about Constantine, you could swear he was talking about somebody that's nigh unto the Trinity. We just love to take the people that culture thinks is really important and just keep looking to them as though they're some kind of an answer. And I look at Moses, who is among one of the highborn, one of the beautiful people. who was so beautiful, he made his mother swoon and seek to save his life. As a baby, he was in Pharaoh's court. He had all of the the trappings of being a rising star. He'd be like a political skyrocket, you know, just shooting through the air. He had everything there in place. And what did God do with him? For 40 years, he humbled that man. 40 years. He was useless to God until he was 80 He needed to be humbled and placed in a play in a position of rather obs- extreme obscurity before he was truly useful. Uh, performing one of the most menial jobs in society at the time, just watching after sheep, man. 
And in so many ways, I feel like his story kind of makes the point. That is that God doesn't often use the beautiful because the beautiful, the, the lovely, the noble, as, he, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, tend to block the view of God. And furthermore, secondly, because they tend or they are prone to thinking that the credit belongs to themselves. They tend to think the crowd is staring at them. You ever had that happen? You, you're greeting somebody, or like across the room, you're like, hey, and they wave, and you're like, ah, and you think you matter to them, and then you realize it's the person like behind you, and you feel like an absolute fool. You're like, ah, oh, dang it, right? You feel like such a dummy think you make eye contact with somebody and they're like, mm, and you're like, oh, we got an inside joke going here. And then you're like, ah, oh, man, he's not talking to me. See, the, the, the crowd that is among the beautiful, the people who tend to be high and noble, tend to think that that wave is actually a them, not a God. What we see here instead in this passage, maybe more than anything else, is that God instead tends to use people, actually he only really uses people who have a firm grasp on who they really are, which is what humility is. And then he magnifies himself through them. God is glorified by using weak vessels to display his power, especially in a world that lives by sight. You have a world that lives by sight, not faith. They live by what they see, what they touch, what they taste, what they feel. And God is always delighted to work in paradox and flip the whole thing upside down. He works in a way that's like, why, why, why would he do that? How would he do that? Like, how does he pull this off? You look... There's one thing after another in the way the Lord works throughout history. And you go, what is he doing? What he's doing is he's pulling out a people for himself who will be eager to magnify him. And that through their weakness. If you would, we go back to our text. And verse 7 is where we'll pick it up in 2 Corinthians 4. He starts with a conjunction. But we have this treasure. Of course, that is connecting us back to what was previously spoken of. The problem with that is, as you back up to verse 1 of the chapter, that is actually going back to a section previous to it. As he speaks of the ministry that he has, he gets into a conversation. If you go back in chapter 3, verse 7, and that's really kind of where this is happening, you're seeing this this highlight of the ministry that Paul has, and he starts speaking of glory. If you notice in verse 7, he says glory a couple of times. In verse 8, he says it again. 9, 10, and 11, he says it, uh, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 more times. You get the theme. He's speaking of glory, the glory that is in Christ. That's the ministry that he has as he as you come over to chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, what is that ministry? Well, that is gospel ministry. And as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now this whole chapter really is in underneath that heading of not losing heart. 
And man, that's easy to do, to lose heart. And you reach the crescendo of that at the end of the chapter. But I'm not going into that today. I'm going into this other section. Going back to verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, But we have this treasure. That treasure is that same gospel ministry. And so much of this comes down to, do you actually view what you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ as a treasure? Or is it just another thing in your life? Do you view the gospel as that pearl of great price, that thing above all other things that your life revolves around? So is it truly a treasure? We have this treasure in earthen vessels. I love this term. Uh, This is speaking of the cheapest form of pottery that they had that we have still. You gather up some clay, you mold a little bit, you, you put it, you don't even necessarily sometimes have to bake it in an oven. They could bake it if it's warm enough outside even. And it's the cheapest form of pottery, the, the, the most valueless form of pottery that they had. You'd store whatever you need to in. A lot of times it was used for the most vile things of, of human society. It's your privy pot. It's your spittoon. It's your trash bin. Earthen vessels. Literally spoken, this is talking about baked dirt How flattering is that to your self-esteem? Look, you have this treasure. Paul is saying he has this treasure in an earthen vessel. Martin Luther had the famous line when the Pope was ridiculing him. He said, look, I, I might be a privy pot, but I contain truth in this privy pot. He had a proper view of himself there. And Paul would have us do the same, learning from his example You have a treasure in baked dirt. Don't blow it up. Don't make yourself out to be something more than you are. Why would he say that? Why would he speak in such terms as to who he is as an individual? And this is the Apostle Paul, of course. Why would he do that? Well, he gives you the reason why with this transition here when he says, so that, so that the surpassing greatness of the power of, will be of God and not from ourselves. He wants to make sure that credit is given where it's due. We, by nature, are constant glory thieves. I think of this all the time when I watch some uh, post-game interview with an athlete. And they ask him about stuff, and they just start talking about how great they are. Terrell Owens had a great line at a press conference. They asked him about something. He goes, well, you know, I love me some me. It was the most honest answer I've ever heard at a press conference. The, the thing is, what we tend to do is say, well, I did this, and this is how that happened. And LeBron James, listen to him talk about how great he is at times. He'll just say, I'm the greatest player in the world. I'm the greatest player in history, and so on and so forth. And you're like, you realize you were a one Achilles tear from being nothing? You realize you were one jig when you should have jogged and your knees gone? You realize how frail your life is? How many of you remember Bo Jackson? Very few. Okay. Bo Jackson was one of the greatest pure athletes of all time. He played pro baseball and pro football. He set records in both at the time. Not all of them good, but he set records. He's an incredible athlete. If you've never seen highlights of him, then you don't know what I'm talking about. But the guy was incredible. And all it took 
One time he was running down the field and a guy grabs hold of him, can't tackle him because Bo Jackson was a monster and he'd run over people. And the guy grabbed his leg. And as he held onto his leg, he was pulling this grown NFL football player along like a child. Like when your kid grabs your leg, you know, and they're playing, Daddy, I, I got you. And you're like, sure you do, kid. And you're pulling him around the place. Bo Jackson is pulling around a grown 250-pound man with his leg. And he pulled so hard, he pulled an artery loose in his hip and messed himself up. Destroyed his hip, destroyed his entire career. Greatest athlete maybe in American history. Whoop-de-doo. Your life is that fragile, LeBron. Stop taking all the credit to yourself. Your life is so insanely fragile. Incredible. The glory we love to just pull to ourselves. I did this. I did that. No, come on, man. Listen to very wealthy people talk. Man, it's exhausting. They talk about their efforts and the things they did. You're like, man, dude, you realize how quick that could have just went away? If not for the thread of grace that was holding you up. Paul wants to make sure, the Lord wants to make sure that we give credit where it's due because the thing tends to happen. That is, shiny things tend to block the view of beautiful things. Whatever's latest, whatever's dangling in front of us right now, tends to grab our attention. And we lose a view of something much greater. How many fools, how many foolish men have forsaken their wives and gone after a young new thing and lost their family, lost half of everything they have, lost all the things that they've been trying to gain for years. A shiny new thing was in front of them and they were willing to sacrifice it all. Man, alive. That's human nature. Instead, we, we ought to glory in the fact, as Paul would point out, that we are simply earthen vessels and that somehow through that, God's power is on display. How is that on display? Great question. I'm glad you asked. Verse 8, he says this. Remember the life of Paul, chased from city to city. Read book of Acts if you'd like to get the, the backdrop there. You see him going from one place to another, traveling all over the world, the Roman world of the time, and we find him getting beat up in one town and yelled at in the next and thrown out of the next city and stoned in another. He says in verse 8, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Afflicted would be hard-pressed smashed down upon, but not squished, you might say. He's using basically the same word in a slightly different way. I thought, when I thought of this, I thought of, I saw these videos not too long ago, and I watched like 50 of them because I have issues. Anyway, uh, they had this hydraulic press, and it was, they would put random objects between the press, and they would smash it like crayons. They would, they would seriously put crayons or or candles, or all these other things. They put it in there, and it would shoot out all over the place, like, uh, like fireworks almost, as these things were being pressed, and you see what comes out. And it's kind of, it's weirdly addicting to watch these videos. Don't judge me too much, right? And I remember watching these. I was like, oh, man, that's wild. And then they came to this, some type of wood. I don't remember what it was, but there was this wooden stump. And they put it on that hydraulic press, and it started to smash it. And you could see they used the pressure they'd used on the crayons and the candles and stuff, and it didn't move. 
just boom. And so they pressed harder and harder. And you could see that they're, they're showing the pressure on the side. They're showing the gauge and it's cranking down on this thing. And eventually it just like shatters and the, the machine itself broke. The whole thing broke under the pressure. This is kind of what Paul's talking about. Other people break and smush, but not the one whose hope and faith is based on Jesus Christ, on the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So though Paul might truly, even deeply, be afflicted, he's not crushed. You're not stopping him. Furthermore, he says, perplexed, but not despairing. It might be said like this, he's a bit at a loss. He doesn't know the answer. Paul had his own affliction that he asked the Lord to remove from him. The Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Many of us have reoccurring ailments or consistent or chronic issues that are not going to go away. They're going to stay with us. And we don't know why or how that is useful in our lives. I don't have the answer to all of that. Paul says he's perplexed. He doesn't, he's at a loss exactly as to how this is going to be used or why this is in his life, but notice, but not despairing. That is not without faith. Yes, I got this issue, but I got faith through it. Yes, I'm struggling. I, I don't know exactly how this is going on, how God is going to use this and work this out for my good and his glory, but I have faith in it. That's something that all who are struggling with health issues that are not going away need to find some comfort in. Perplexed, but not at a loss, and not despairing. Further, he goes on to say that he is persecuted. Persecuted is to be aggressively pursued. Uh, we have a, a society that that seems to think they're always being persecuted. Uh, we have a society that is finding that if, it, if somebody just says, you know, I don't really think those shoes go with your outfit, they're like, oh. you know, they're like, they're undone by small things. That's not what Paul is talking about. Just because somebody says something slightly off color to you or, or has offended you doesn't mean you're right. It doesn't mean that it was persecution. He's talking about aggressive pursuit. I think of this as the kid on the playground, the kid in school who he goes to the playground and he gets picked on, and then he goes in class and, and he feels safe for a minute, but then in the hallway he sees the bully again, and then he gets on the school bus, and the kid's on the bus with him, and on the move from, from the school bus to home, the kid's harassing him along the way. That's an aggressive pursuit. That's persecution coming after them. But notice he says in response to this persecution, but not forsaken. This has such a rich history in the Old Testament that references would, would seem almost overwhelming to bring up. There's so many different texts you can consider when we consider God's determination to not forsake his people. On Sunday nights, when I do have the opportunity to teach, I'm going through the book of Esther, and if anything I could highlight from that book as a theme, that would be it. God will not forsake 
his people. As dark as it seems to get, as dreary as it might appear in the moment, he will not forsake his people. God always keeps his promise. He always pulls through. Paul sees, though he is aggressively pursued, God has not left him. Or as he says in 2 Timothy 1.12, For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him until that day. He has faith in that, even though he is aggressively pursued, even though Paul is harassed, even though he's assaulted, he knows that God has not forsaken him. And isn't that what you need to know? Isn't that what you need to dwell on when you are hotly pursued for the sake of doing what is right? You stand up and you say what is right. You rebuke, you push back against the sin in your life and culture the people around you, and you need to know that God has not left you alone in that fight. You are not forsaken. He says, furthermore, in verse 9, struck down but not destroyed. And this is an easy one to illustrate, in my opinion. This is a classic boxing illustration of a guy who's in the fight. He's gotten knocked down, but he gets back up. Round two, knocked down, gets back up. Round three, gets knocked down, but he gets back up. He's not out of the fight. Righteous man falls seven times, but rises again. He's struck down, but he's not, as he says, destroyed. He's still in the fight. Regardless of what you know, imagine trying, if you're a Roman, or you're one of the people persecuting him, like the Judaizers that are following after him everywhere he goes. Whatever city he goes to, they follow him behind and try to undermine what he taught. Imagine how frustrated you must be that it doesn't matter if you afflict him. It doesn't matter if you confuse him. It doesn't matter if you persecute him. It doesn't matter if you strike him down. He keeps coming. What a frustrating thing that must be for an enemy to know that he can't be stopped by human means. And in verse 10, he sums much of these statements up. As he says, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. The dying here that he speaks of is all the negative side of those things that were just mentioned. That is the afflicted, the, per the perplexed, the persecuted, the struck down. That's the dying of Jesus that he's speaking of here. That's how it's, that's how it's visible. And so that the life, and the life is all that part that's not happening, that he's not being destroyed, that he's not despairing, that he's not crushed. He's summing this up, describing all these things. He, all these things, rather, highlight for us the frailty of the vessel, don't they? Paul's saying, look, I can be afflicted. He's not above that. He can be perplexed. He can be persecuted and struck down. There is a frailty in that vessel. That vessel is, as he said, an earthen, a, a vessel of baked dirt. And those things can shatter so easily. Years ago when I was over in Israel, they were, where you're walking around in various cities and all over the ground, there's rock and stuff everywhere. But I noticed as I'm looking down in quite a few places, you're like, what is that? And I would lean over and I'd pick up these pieces and have like a little bit of 
writing on it of some sort. And you're like, what? And you pick up another one, another one. I picked up like a handful of stuff and I was talking to the, one of the people leading our trip and I said, um, this is all pottery, isn't it? I'm like, yeah. I said, well, how old do you think this is? They go, hmm. There were so many different cities built on top of that and, and, and destroyed and the next one, destroyed the next one over and over again. And you're walking on so much pottery. And it was so valueless. I'm holding this stuff and I have some of it in my office still because I asked the, the person that ran the park even on the way out, I said, can I take this with me? And the guy said, yes. I was like, this is like 3,000 years old probably, man. You know, this little piece with some writing and stuff like that. I goes, yeah, it's everywhere. It just didn't matter. It was, it was everywhere. That pottery is all over the place. Not much value in that thing. It's frail. It breaks so easily. The vessel, Paul, is contrasted, though, throughout this, as you notice, with the power that is made evident through that frailty. He, Paul, thus is, is acting like what? He's acting like his, his master. You look at Paul and you see a guy who shouldn't be able to do the things he's doing. He shouldn't be able to carry on the way he is. He shouldn't be able to do the things that he does. You see, as... As he is spoken of by the Corinthians, he's apparently ineloquent. He doesn't match up to his peers on that level, certainly not Apollos. He, he doesn't arrive there, and he's unimpressive in appearance. You ever meet somebody and they're like, oh, I thought you'd be taller. Like, Thanks, bud. Appreciate it. Want to kick me in the pants while I walk away too? Rub me on the head? Hey, that would be Paul, unimpressive. You look at him, and no one's looking at this guy thinking, you know what, this guy's going to change the world. I've read and listened to various historians that will give their top 10 most influential people in human history, and Paul's always in the top 10. Even, these are, these are not Christian historians that I'm speaking of. These are people that are in the Jesus seminar and stuff like that. Guys that don't really care about Christ and they erode the Bible all the place. And, they'll, and some people will even take Paul and put him higher on that top 10 list than Jesus. What? That didn't make sense, first of all. But anyway, the point is no one's looking at Paul going, bet this guy's going to change the world. Bet this guy's going to be a top 10 mover and shaker on planet Earth and human history. How is he doing this? Paul would tell you that he's glad that he's weak because that allows for the opportunity for people to clearly see God is doing something. Or as often said during the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you want people to look at Israel and say there is a God among those people. Paul wants you to look at his life and see there has to be a God at work in him. Because there's no way that unimpressive, ineloquent guy, inarticulate, whatever it was they claimed he was, is pulling this off. Paul viewed, and this is huge, his perspective on this, Paul viewed his weaknesses, his frailty, as the backdrop that would make the treasure sparkle. 
shine, glow. He viewed his frailty as the opportunity to make sure you could see the God who was working through him. You know, if you, uh, I remember back forever ago now, buying an engagement ring uh, for Priscilla. And when I would go to these jewelry stores, uh, they, they never showed me the ring in anything but the most optimum possible setting. Right? They, didn't, they didn't put it in dingy place or whatever. Instead, they put a ring, they put a diamond or like a diamond necklace. If you want to showcase it, you put it on what? Like a black piece of, of velvet. Why do you do that? For the contrast. So that it pops. So that it shines. You want people to ooh and ah at that sparkle. I remember learning all kinds of things about diamonds, like their clarity and cut and color and all that kind of useless. Anyway, I remember learning all that stuff and I would look at them and I got good enough. I'd be like, oh, this one is blah, 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 blah. And I knew the stuff because, and, and then eventually you see one and you go, ooh, right? Oh, that's a nice one. And that fits my budget. <laughs> That'll work. You want people to ooh and awe at that diamond so that they're willing to buy it. Well, doesn't that speak to what Paul's trying to do here? He wants you and I to marvel at God, not at Paul. To look past Paul, not to be like, well, that Paul, man, he needs to be on Mount Rushmore somewhere. We need to build a church to him. Statues and paintings and whatnot, come on. We are in this world to showcase the treasure the treasure that is highlighted for us in verse 6. The God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, that creative work of creation. First words of Scripture, let there be light. First words from God in Scripture, let there be light. He is going to perform a second creative work when he gives you new life. He is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And friends, if that light is to be seen, if that glory is to shine, it is to shine through us. That's remarkable. The glory of God in the face of Christ is to shine through us. In verse 11, he doesn't really let off the gas here. In fact, he actually, what he does is he really kind of says the same thing again, which is a means of intensifying the point he's trying to make. Here he adds, constantly being delivered over to death. He's not, for Christ's sake, he's not saying that as a complaint. He's not offering that up as some kind of complaint, as it could easily be read. And he's saying, look, my life is constantly being delivered over to death. That's my sternly worded letter to management. No, that's not what he's doing. Instead, it's not a complaint. But he's, Paul is stating this as the roadmap to victory. He's saying this being delivered over to death is the route to glory and paradoxically, the road to life. Verse 12, he says, so death works in us, but life in you. And you can see what's happening here in the life of Paul. Paul is living 
as Jesus did. Paul's life, as one author put it, is becoming more obviously cruciform. the, The servant is truly becoming like his master. And you can see that as you read through the text. Verses 8 and 9, you can almost hear when he's talking about being afflicted and being persecuted and struck down. You can almost hear, not my will, but thine be done. He's not as consumed in his own issue. He is consumed with seeing God glorified through it. You can see Paul entrusting himself to the Father through trials as you read this. Not only can you hear this and see this, you can feel his delight to exalt the Father regardless of the opposition and in fact, right in the face of it. Delighted. To to have the opportunity to exalt the Father. That's the life of Christ. We don't find a woe is me attitude. We don't find a feeling sorry for himself attitude. Instead, we see Paul delighting that he now has this opportunity to be the backdrop for the glory of God. And in some ways, at least for me, you have to smile as you listen to him speak like a good shepherd who's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. That's verse 12. So death works in us, but life in you. The only way that these Corinthians are going to live is if Paul's willing to die. If he's willing to lay down his life. I think sometimes that in Christendom, in general, we ask for far too little from people. I think sometimes we ask for very little. Uh, We expect Christians to be nice people and to give a little money at church. You know, it sounds like a country song almost. And be a nice guy and whatnot, be a good citizen and things like that. And I think sometimes we ask for far too little. And the world is stepping into that void, especially the political left, and it's giving people a vision bigger than, than their own life. It's giving them climate change and things like talking about cultural change and all of that stuff. And it's giving them something bigger to live for. And Christianity, sometimes we fail to push people to this greater vision of what God has. That is, give up your life. This isn't a small request. Lay down your life that others might live. Die and find that you will bring life. Paul is being tested severely, I think, as he wrote this letter. This is the third of his letters to them. He spent over 18 months with them. He struggled with this church more than probably any other. He's being tested back in 55 AD, most likely when he wrote this, by a church that is discrediting him, seeking to discount him and push him to the sidelines. And as painful as that experience had to be for Paul, look at what we get to witness. We get to witness an earthenware vessel looking like, resembling the Savior who bought him. We see an angry, self-righteous persecutor of the church becoming truly and obviously more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's glorious. That's what I long for in my own life. That's what I long to see 
And as I go back to the beginning of what I talked about, maybe you are a nobody. Lay down your life for Christ and find that you will truly live. Why are you, as the psalmist says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, and he will do it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for a chance to look at your word. I thank you for a chance to look through the scriptures and consider how we ought to live our lives before you. Thank you for the words of Paul. Thank you that you humbled him in such a way that, Lord, that he could be useful, that he could be conformed more to the image of your son, that we might learn and grow even as we go through the word and listen to what it is he has to share with us. Lord, we praise you for your glorious name. Amen.